You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, Planted. We are walking our people through how to cultivate a life of meditation that leads to encouragement and hope. Well, good morning, Sojourn. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here. It's great to be with you and to proclaim the word, to look at the word of God together. Well, we're in a series that we call Planted. And what this series is about is each of us that are pastors that are preaching this series are taking a particular text that has been meaningful in our lives and looking at how God used that text and how God has planted us in his word, transformed formed us through this particular text. And last week, Pastor Nathan looked at Psalm 1. And here's the question that as we look at this text today, I want to ask you, I want to help you wrestle with this particular text. And when you read the Bible, what is it that you're looking for? I want you to ask yourself that question. When you read the Bible, what's your goal? What is it that you are looking for when you read the Bible? Because, you see, sometimes people read the Bible and their goal is only information. That's their goal, is information. They're looking for information, and that is not bad in and of itself. That you sometimes read the Bible and you're thinking, I want to find out certain things, certain truths, and I'm going to read the Bible to find it. But if all we do is look in the Bible for information, and that's all we're looking for, then Paul lets us know in his letter to the Corinthians what happens. He had some people in the church who had certain truths that they believed and that they knew were true. And Paul says, if you have that, if that's all you have is that information, he says, it puffs you up. It makes you arrogant and proud. You want, it makes you where you think you know it all if all you are looking for in the Bible is information. But there's also some people that read the Bible primarily or even only for affirmation. That is to feel better about myself or about my circumstances. And that's not always bad. There are times when you are absolutely crushed by your circumstances or you're crushed by something in yourself and you need to go to the Bible and say, God, tell me the truth about myself and my circumstances. Help affirm what I need to hear affirmed in my life. But if all you do is look in the Bible for affirmation, if that is all that you do, then the Bible kind of becomes to you like a book of, of Instagram posts, okay? You, you've seen, I mean, a lot of people do this. It's not necessarily bad. They have Instagram posts that have a Bible verse that's, that, that kind of makes you feel good, okay? But if all you do is that, you tend to use the Bible to affirm yourself. That's what you tend toward. I just looked on Instagram for some of these just to give some examples of this. One of these, Philippians chapter 4. We've all seen this one before. I can do all things through Christ. This gets plastered on football games. It gets plastered on all sorts of sports. Here, it's apparently you can do all things through Christ means you can climb that mountain. Just guess what? Just because you got Jesus doesn't mean you can climb that mountain, okay? I can do all things through Christ does not mean you can climb that mountain. Paul, when he writes this particular text, he is talking about how he can endure persecution for the sake of the gospel is what Paul is talking about. Paul is not trying to climb a mountain. But that's what happens when we start to use the text only for our own affirmation is we misuse it to mean what we want it to mean. Here's another example. 
We see this one a lot of times around 4th of July. People say, Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance, with an implication there that the people he chose for his inheritance happen to be those who live in the United States. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is about the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God's old covenant people as covenant that was fulfilled in Jesus. This isn't about America. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's not a verse for the 4th of July. Now, in the midst of this, I ran across one that actually made me start laughing. Luke chapter 4 and verse 7. Somebody put this on their Instagram post. Now, you may think, why is this funny? Here's why. These are the words of the devil. <laughs> the devil says this to Jesus. If you bow down to me, I will give you all these things. This is the words of the devil. And somebody found it in- inspiring to them, affirming for them, and it put it on there. Well, in the midst of that, I was inspired to do my own personal one with one of my life verses. And so I put up my own. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised, when you crave meat, you like meat, you can eat as much as you want. This is my life verse. Not really. It's not really my life verse. But the point is, is that what I'm doing with that text, when I put that there, is I am using the Bible to affirm what I want rather than seeking what the Bible has to say. You see, we can use the Bible for information. It's not always bad. If that's all you do, though, you get puffed up, you get arrogant. You can use the Bible for affirmation, and that's not always bad, but if that's all you do, if that's primarily what you do, you're going to start misusing the Bible to affirm and to support what you want. Because primarily, what we should be doing in our interaction with the Scriptures is not information, not affirmation, but transformation. Transformation. We ought to be looking for how can this text change me to be more like Jesus? How can this text plant me more deeply in who Jesus is? And here's what I found over and over through the years. When we read the Bible for transformation, those texts that were once affirmations, we thought they just made me feel better about myself, they mean both less and more than they did before. That happened to me about 25 years ago. When I ran across this text, I'd seen it before, I'd heard it before, but Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. About 25 years ago, as a pastor in a very small town, town of about 400 people, we were two hours from the nearest urban context. Now, some of you love small towns. Some of you wish you could be in a small town. That is not me, okay? And praise God for you. That's nothing wrong with your perspective on this. It is not me, okay? What I want, what I long for, is to be as close to the center of a city as possible. And I was there, and I was two hours from the nearest city in this particular little church, in this town of 400 people, surrounded by cattle pastures. And my plan, it shouldn't have been, this was wrong, But my plan was, I will spend my three or four years in seminary at this church, preaching at this church, and then I'm going to go on somewhere else. I'm headed somewhere else. As soon as this time is over, I am headed somewhere else. That shouldn't have been my attitude, but it was my attitude. So the three years of seminary ended. I graduated from seminary, and God slammed every single door. Every single opportunity I thought might work out, every single place I tried to go, God just kept slamming those doors. And I felt like I was stuck. 
and stranded in this place of 400 people that I am stuck and stranded, this church of about 40 or 50 people in this tiny town. And in the process of this, I was preaching through the book of Jeremiah, and I got to chapter 29, this text that we read. And I got to this text in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being. You have a future and a hope. And all my life, I had read that text as a text of affirmation. In fact, I had a plaque from when I graduated from high school that had this verse on it. And I'd always read this text as a text of affirmation. That this is God saying that my plans that I have, the dreams that I have, God wants to be on my side to help me fulfill my dreams. That's how I took the text. That's how I'd read the text. And I studied this text in its context to preach it. And God began to transform me through this text. Because I realized this text is not about affirming what you want and affirming your dreams and desires and to say, Jesus, you're going to take my side with my dreams and my desires. This text is a text about living a life that's planted in God's promises, even when we aren't in the place or with the people we plan to be. That's what it's about. Being planted in the promises of God, even when you're not in the place you planned to be. That's what the text is actually about. This text wasn't written for a plaque or an Instagram post. This text is a letter that was written to people who were in exile. Now, I'm going to be talking about a lot about exile. So I want us to get a good understanding of the biblical idea, the biblical notion of exile. Exile. You see, the notion of exile really goes all the way back to the opening verses of Scripture, the opening chapters. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, you find this moment where Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden, and they are, in essence, being exiled from the Garden. That's what's happening. They have sinned against God. They are being exiled from the Garden. That's what's happening right there. And we find that the exile was a threat that God used, was was something that God used to try to, to let the Israelites know, this is what's going to happen to you if you persist in your sin. God told the Israelites over and over, if you start turning to idols, then I will allow you to be exiled from your land. I will allow you to be taken from your land, taken from this land of promise that I've given you. I will take you from that land if you continue to sin against me, to turn to idols. This is exile. And so time after time, the Israelites turned away, and so the exiles began. It started in 721 BC when the Assyrians took the northern 12 tribes and scattered them across their empire. But then it continued with the Babylonians beginning in the year 605 and then again in 597 when the Babylonians took all of the most powerful, all of the most wise, all of the most wealthy people. They took all of them and they exiled them to Babylon. This letter was written in that context. This letter was written after the most wealthy, the most powerful. Those people had been taken out and they had been exiled to Babylon. And it's important for you to know some of those people, yes, that were exiled were unrighteous. But some of them were righteous people. Ezekiel and Daniel, the prophets, they were among those who were exiled during those times of exile. So God's people become a diaspora, enslaved and exiled. And this letter is sent 
to those people in exile in Babylon. So let's think about exile in biblical terms. When it talks about exile in the Bible, really there's a sense in which an exile is any time you're separated, torn away from the place where you belong. When I'm torn away, taken away from the place I belong, that is in some sense an exile. Sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes it's because of circumstances. But it's where you lose the place or the situation where you felt like you belonged. That's exile. I don't know about you, but has anybody else felt some exile this year at times? Or the past year? Felt some situations where you felt like, I have been separated from the place where I belong. I don't have a place where I fit now. You have a sense of exile. Some of you are feeling it because you lost your jobs at some point. You thought you had a place where you belonged in terms of your employment, and suddenly you don't have a place anymore. Some of you, it's by racial and ethnic tension. Some of you feel the frustration of living in structures and systems that were constructed to constrain you and to reward others. Some of you feel the exile, the tornness of separation. Just the fact you haven't gotten to see your family, your friends, like you wanted to. And sometimes even here, you feel separated and exiled because there are seats between you and others, and you feel like you're an island alone. It's exile. That's what you're feeling. That ache in the soul of exile. That's what you're feeling in those circumstances. That's what you're feeling in that is a sense of exile. Of I don't have a place where I fit or I belong. I've been removed from where I fit. I've been removed from where I belong. And if you feel exile, this text is for you. It's a letter written to people who are in exile. And here's what this text has to say to us that the promises of God are present even in our exile. The promises of God do not go away in our exile. And it's important that we recognize that. And here's why it's so important. There is a lie that haunts us in our times of exile. And here's the lie. That God has nothing good for me in the place where I am. That's the lie of exile. It's that I'm in a place in exile where God has nothing good for me. I am in a place where God's blessings can't reach me. That's what the people believed who were in exile. You see that in verses 8 and 9 of this text. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Jeremiah 29. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. Now, here's what's going on here. There were prophets, false prophets, prophets not of the true God, but false prophets in Babylon among the people. And those prophets were saying, there is nothing good for you in Babylon. And God's going to get you out of Babylon within the next two years. Don't unpack your bags. 
Don't do anything here. God is getting you out of Babylon within two years. Don't do anything except wait because there is nothing for you there. There are no blessings of God. There are no promises of God available there. The only way you can have the promises of God is if you get back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, back to the land where you started at. That's the only way you get God's blessings. And the people were believing them. The people were believing them. They had to go back to Judah and Jerusalem and to those portions, areas where they had been. They had to get back there to get God's blessings. They were doing what I call living in the land of if only. Here's what I mean by that. They had this attitude that I can, I can get God's blessings if only I can be in this place. If only things can go this way. If only I get this, then that means God is really present. And that tempts us as well. That tempts us as well. You ever have those moments when you think, if only I had this job, everything would be okay. If only I lived in this city. If only if, only if we went over to that church. If only COVID hadn't happened If only there was a vaccine, if only this circumstance would change, if only this person was in my life or this person was out of my life, if only that, then it would be okay. That's what's happening here. And that's the lie and the temptation of exile, where we are saying, I am separated from God's blessings, but if only I had this, it would be okay. If only I had this. And that drives us to seek all sorts of superficial and false pleasures. Because we think if only I had that, it would be okay. It's a refusing to rejoice in the place where you are. And that's why so many of us struggle, I think, with commitment in our world. To a person, to a place, or even to a church. Always running from one thing to another because instead of seeing God's work in the place where we are, we live in this land of if only. If only this, then then it would be better. If only this. And so we run from one thing to another, to another, to another, and we are never satisfied. And it makes us miserable. Here's the deal. Even popular entertainment sees this. Has anybody over the past couple of weeks watched the movie Soul? Anybody? So if you, several of you have, okay? Don't watch the movie to get your view of the afterlife, okay? That's not what the point is. But it's a great movie, nonetheless, if you don't get your theology of the afterlife from it. But part of the central point of that movie is he gets the gig of his dreams. He's in the band of his dreams. And he realizes that that hasn't brought him satisfaction. He thought, if only I have that, I'm going to be satisfied. And he realizes that instead, what really brings satisfaction and joy is to find joy in the place, the ordinary things around you, the things of where you are. Now, here's the thing. We as Christians, we have so much more than popular entertainment can give us on this. We have so much more because we have the presence and the promises of God. We have those, the presence and the promises of God. And yet we believe the lies so often, if only, if only I have that. Well, Jeremiah, his reply to them, his his telling them what to do is nothing less than earth-shaking. It's in verse 5 is where it starts. Jeremiah says in verse 5, Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Find wives for yourselves, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and your daughters to, to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Now, when they read this text, the Israelites would have been immediately reminded of something in their past. You see, all the way back in Leviticus and other places, Deuteronomy, other places as well, when they went into the promised land, God said to them to multiply. He said to them to build houses. He encouraged them, build houses, multiply, all of those things when they went into the promised land. So here's what he's saying here that's earth-shaking. He's saying the promises of God that were available to you in your homeland are available to you in Babylon. That God's blessings didn't stop And the capacity for God's blessings did not stop at the borders of your homeland. Even in exile, the promises and the blessings of God are available. See, they didn't believe that. They thought that their God's blessings had stopped when they crossed the borders of their land, headed out in an exile. But what they discovered was that God's blessings are available to them where they are. But then it gets even more radical in verse 7. Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, says in verse 7, pursue the well-being. Some of your translations have peace or welfare. The word there is shalom. Pursue the peace, the shalom of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Now, shalom or peace. It means more than just an absence of conflict. Shalom or peace is is flourishing within God's good design. That's what peace is, biblically. Flourishing in the good design of God. And so he says here, pursue the peace, the flourishing of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you thrive. And not only is he saying God's blessings extend to you in that land, but also in your place of exile, as you pursue my peace, my blessing will be made known in that place of exile, in its peace, in its flourishing, in its thriving. You're thriving. Your thriving brings about its thriving, its flourishing. Not only seeking peace in that place, but for that place. So what does this mean for us? It means that God's presence and his promises are present even in my exile. Here's what that lets you do if you're in a time of exile. If you're in a time you feel like you're just separated from where you fit or where you belong. Instead of becoming frustrated and angry or chasing after other pleasures to try to numb that longing, we can be patient and ask questions like, God, what are you teaching me through the limits that I'm feeling right now? God, where are you present in this place where I'm at, in the situation I'm in? Where can I be a person of peace or shalom in this place? What can I do to be a person of peace in this place? Now, God had a plan for them. And that's where we get to that verse 11. 
that I thought was just an affirmation for so many years. I know the plans I have for you, verse 11, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. But listen to what God's plan was, verses 12 through 14. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Now, that sounds beautiful. That sounds wonderful. That sounds like, oh, wow, that's not that different from what the false prophets were saying. But here's the deal. He says in a few verses, and he says in this context... It's going to be 70 years before I do this. 70 years before I do this. God has a promise. God has a plan. But God will do it in his time. God works in his time. 25 years ago, there I was feeling stranded in that 400-person town preached on Jeremiah 29, 11. That for years I had read as a text of affirmation of my dreams, my desires, what I wanted, and it became instead a text of transformation. That God is present in the place where I am. So after preaching this text, within a few weeks or months after preaching this text, we started doing some things differently. Planted rose bushes in front of a house that would never be ours. It's a parsonage. Planted rose bushes there. Planted a garden in the back. But more importantly, I decided I'm going to stick it out here and serve God and claim the reality of the presence of God until God sees fit to move me. And God didn't do that in a few months or even in a couple of years. We were there another three and a half years after that, almost seven years total, in that particular context. And God didn't take me to a new place, but he made me a new person. And that's often how God works in our exile. He doesn't take you to a new place. He makes you a new person. And I can say with honesty that those last couple, three years there, I loved those people. I absolutely loved those people, and I learned even to love that place. And it helped me to be planted in God's Word as I saw what God had done in that place. And so when you read the Bible, what are you looking for? What are you looking for when you read the Bible? Are you looking for affirmation? If all you look for is affirmation, you're going to be miserable because there's a lot of non-affirming things in the Bible if you really read it in context. 70 years, okay. Maybe we got 70 more years of 2020. Who knows? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm I'm not trying to say that. But, But you don't know. You don't know what God's timing is in things. You don't know what God is up to. But if we look for transformation instead of affirmation, we can recognize that that we can be patient That helps us in those times. You ever have those times, you're like, I've read the Bible for a long time, and I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm just not getting anything out of it. If all you're looking for is affirmation, then you're going to quit at that point. But if you're looking for transformation, recognize transformation happens slow. 
Transformation happens a lot more like, like marriage does. I mean, 10% of marriage is, is just wonderful communication and connection with one another. 90% of marriage is staying committed to each other, doing life together, and not killing each other. That's 90% of it. But here's the deal. You never get to those moments of that 10% of connection and communication unless you stick with each other through the 90% of just not killing each other. It doesn't happen that way. It's the same way with a tree in my backyard. I got a peach tree in the backyard. Three weeks of the year, there are ripe, wonderful peaches on those branches, bushels of them. But 49 weeks of the year, there's nothing on that tree. But you don't get to those three weeks of fruit without the 49 weeks of waiting. It's that way when you're seeking to be transformed by God's word. It takes time, and you're going to slog through a lot that you're not getting anything out of to get to those moments when God shows you something glorious and amazing. But those people back in Jeremiah, we have something that they didn't have. And it's glorious and it's wonderful. And here's what we have that they did not have. The fact that Christ, God in flesh, was exiled in our place. You see, that's what the cross was. On the cross, Jesus was exiled from the place where he belonged, exiled by the people to whom he belonged. He experienced the ultimate exile on the cross. And because he experienced the ultimate exile, our exiles are never ultimate. They never are. And on that cross, God in flesh was exiled and separated. And God was present in that place. He was present in that place, but he was present in wrath and in pain and in being wounded and bruised. And Jesus died in that ultimate exile. But God had a plan with a future and a hope. And God's ultimate plan for a future and a hope wasn't the Israelites getting back to their land. God's ultimate plan with a future and a hope was that he wouldn't leave Jesus dead. And God raised Jesus from the dead. And in Jesus' resurrection, he raised him from exile in a garden. And Jesus has not built not just a house, but a kingdom. And he has born children, not through biological birth, but Jesus has born children by those being adopted into his family by grace through faith. That's what's happened. Jesus, his cross and his resurrection is the ultimate answer, the ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah 29. God's power and God's promises are present in your place of exile because God in Christ has been in there, in your place. He has experienced exile, but he has triumphed over it. He has triumphed over it. And if you're his child, so will you. A few years ago, one of my kids had a lot of bruises on her leg. What on earth have you been doing? What have you been up to? And she started telling about each one. Well, this one I was playing out doing this, and, and this one I did this, and this one I fell when I was doing this, and started telling me the story of all those different bruises that she had. And then she said, sometimes your bruises, they just tell you where you've been. They tell you where you've been. 
And that's true. And I don't know that many of us have gotten through 2020 without some bruises. The bruises tell you where you've been. But here's the truth that we can claim because of what Jesus did on the cross. Your wounds, your bruises may tell you where you've been, but they cannot tell you where you're going because his bruises, his wounds tell you where you're going. Your bruises tell you where you've been. His, they tell you where you're going. And where you're going is that that wounded and bruised body of Jesus was raised to glory. And if you are his child, so will you. That's what it means when we believe in a God who is present even in our exile. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your presence with us. We confess our weakness, and yet we praise you that you are present even in the moments when we are exiled, when we feel such an ache of exile. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never come to that point of trusting in Jesus, of claiming that exile that he went through on our behalf, in our place, of saying, you were exiled for me. You were exiled to save me. And I place my faith in you so that just as you were raised, I will be too. If there's anyone here who has not committed themselves to you, has not become your child, this at the dawning of a new year. That you would work in people's hearts to turn to you. To turn to you as this year begins. All of its hopes, all of its dreams, all of its fears. We have lived as exiles to fear so long. Many of us. We pray that you would turn our weeping into laughing, our sorrows into joy. That you would do that through Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, take and eat, this is my body, and took the cup and said, take and drink, this is my blood. The way we're doing this now is with the the things that they're handing out right now, the wafer and the juice. What I want to do is invite each of you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that you partake of this, take the wafer and eat it, the juice and drink it. And let that be a reminder to you of the body of Jesus broken, bruised, wounded for you. Let this be a participation in his death and a recognition that for those who are participants in his death by grace through faith, we will also be participants in his resurrection to new life. Amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.